Episode 75 of Eventually Super Train. Oh, thank you, everyone, for all your listening up to this point. And keep listening from now. Don't stop listening now because I thank you for listening. I'm Dan. I'm your main host for this short-lived TV show podcast that will eventually cover Super Train. We cover the shows that never got enough love. We go three shows at a time, one episode at a time. So this episode, we begin in 1992. Myself my friend Amy the Conqueror discuss episode 14 of Erie, Indiana, Mr. Cheney. Then myself and my friend uh, Mitchell Hadley discuss episode 25 from, geez, I think it's March of 1960 of Bourbon Street Beat. And then my podcast pal Amanda Reyes and I close out the episode with our discussion uh, from January of 84, episode 7 of Masquerade Oil. It's a good time. Thank you uh, again for, for tuning in, folks. I said we just dive right in. Let's dive right in and uh, do a little Erie, Indiana. Erie, Indiana. Day 45. I knew my hometown was going to be different from where I grew up in New Jersey. But this is ridiculous. Nobody believes me. But Erie is the center of weirdness for the entire planet. Item. A guy that looks suspiciously like Elvis lives on my paper route. Thank you, little paper boy. Item. Bigfoot eats out of my trash. Item. A bizarre housewife cult in town has been sealing up their kids in giant rubber kitchenware so they don't age. And now, just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, I discovered that in Erie, even man's best friend is up to no good. When I try to tell this to my family, they just think I'm weird. Better weird than dead. Episode 14, Mr. Cheney, directed by Mark Goldblatt, written by Jose Rivera, March 8th, 1992. I'm actually going to read the uh, the little blurb on the back of the DVD, which I, I believe is what Marshall says, because I think it sums it up pretty good. I wasn't the only one who thought this Harvest King hoopla was for the birds. I hadn't seen that weird kid with the gray hair since our little adventure with the ghost of Grungy Bill. I could tell he wasn't somebody to mess with. It seems we were the only two guys not buying lottery tickets. Why? Did he know something I didn't? The Harvest King gets all sorts of dorky prizes, but then he must go out in the woods during a full moon until he catches a glimpse of the mysterious, eerie wolf. What I wanted to know was, how come there's no such thing as an ex-Harvest King? I like that. I think I, I think that that um, uh, uh, sums it up. It's 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 more or less. Yeah, Marshall becomes this Harvest King or whatever that he doesn't want to because of the gray-haired kid, and he has to go out to the woods with a Mister Cheney and see the eerie wolf. And there's a full moon. And I'm not going to go any 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 farther. Any further? Any further? Anything further, Father? Uh, I'm just going to stop there. I'm going to give you a blast on the other side of the blast. Amy the Conqueror and myself await. Mr. Cheney. I think if if you've watched any movies, you might know, um, you might have known what uh, this one was going to be about. Oddly enough, when I hit play on this one, 
I didn't know. Mr. Cheney, it didn't... I should have known. Um, I don't always pay as much attention as I should, but I have here with me someone who's going to talk to me about this episode. The great Amy the Conqueror. I was going to break into the Podcast Mania Amy the Conqueror song right there. I did not. Uh, Amy, how are you? <laughs> ah, don't worry about me. I want to know what you think of Mr. Cheney. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, I was so happy to see not only John Aston back, but the white-haired kid back, um, uh, which, which kind of has a nice uh, continuity. Uh, this this was still um, this was still early days for that sort of thing happening on TV, so it was nice to have them back and in the next episode. Um, I like this episode. You know, I didn't like this as much as the the previous one, the Hole in the Head Gang, um, but I do like werewolves, and I do like sort of the fun way they treat the werewolf in this. Um, they they do that very. Um, uh, the early 90s morphing, you know, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. That was completely wrong. You know the Michael Jackson song, Black or White, where everyone's morphing. <laughs> I got complete. I started seeing it. I got yep, the I know what you're saying. Completely wrong. And and that that's what the werewolf does. Um, I um I I I I I did quite like this episode. There's something about this that has a thing that Tornado Days does, where um. It looks like terrible things are going to happen to Marshall, but no one really cares, um, which I find slightly strange. <laughs> um, but um, I think, again, this is one written by the other creator, Jose Rivera, and it's directed by Mark Goldblatt. And the moment I saw that name, I thought, Dead Heat? And I had to look it up, and yes, he directed Dead <laughs> Heat. He also edited. Awesome. If you look at Yeah, if you look at the films he's edited, we could talk about that at the end, like... The Terminator, hello. One of the one of the editors on Terminator Two, hello. The, like this is this is um this was obviously this guy was mainly an editor, but he he did direct Dead Heat and this. Um, I it, it's it's funny because after the previous one, which is one of my favorites, I really like this episode. I don't think it is quite as good as that, um uh because. I don't know that I have a because on that. I, I, I think it's it's quite a good episode. Um, but I, I, I think what it is, is there is sort of the... Um, you, you get a lot of backstory for the town, and you get a lot of the mythology of the town, and, um, and you get a lot, a lot of wolf-werewolf-related stuff. Which I like, so I you no, know, I guess I guess I do like the episode quite a bit. I, uh, I think, you know what? It's not one of my. If if I had to pick top three, it would probably be Holding the Head Gang, Foreverware, and maybe the one where everything gets lost. This would be right behind that. I think. I think it's a very sharp episode. I think it's very funny. I think it's very. It's got some good scary-ish moments and some lots I mean you have Joe Dante as your creative consultant you're going to do howling jokes and werewolf jokes uh, although this was the time of howling new moon rising so at, or was it howling freaks I forget I, I want to say new moon rising because that's one of my favorites um, and I am the one person on the planet earth who says that about the howling movies um, but yeah I, <laughs> I, 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 I quite I, I quite like this episode. Um, 
there maybe there's something slightly off in the from the first werewolf transformation the kind of the um uh I, I guess I could talk about this more in a minute I think there's something slightly off with the structure of it but I did quite enjoy it not quite as much as holding the head gang which I think keeps building and getting crazier this one builds to a point and then sort of goes to the end which isn't bad but um uh I yeah I I quite I'm going to stop talking Amy you tell what did you think <laughs> oh, I love this episode. I like oh, it just uh, as much as Hill and the Head Gang. I also like Steven Root a lot, so I was happy to see him. He always makes me laugh in no matter what movie he's in, so I knew it was going to be a good episode once I saw he was in it. And, yeah, I liked that the gray-haired kid was back. I mean, the howling joke. There was a lot to like, I think, about this episode. They even threw a Twin Peaks reference in, so I'm always sold when they do that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I really like this one. I, I think you don't want to uh, think Although, was... again, they're talking sacrifice, and, you know, it's some some dark traditions they have in Erie. We, I, we always yeah. knew it was a weird town, but now they're yes. kind of implying that, you know, and everybody turns a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. You know, the it also makes the mayor... Um, he seems to be getting sleazier and sleazier with every episode. Yes. Yeah. At least in my opinion. Yeah. I think I think the one thing that makes me like the hole in the head gang a little bit more is that it No, maybe it does. see here's the thing in my mind maybe I do love this one as much as I love the hole in the head gang. Gosh. <laughs> that's why that's why I'm fighting with myself because I love a good werewolf one. This is a fun werewolf episode. Um geez, maybe I do and I was just trying to and I'm, I'm only understanding it now. I'm only understanding my feelings about this episode now. I think, I think, I think the one <laughs> thing I have is that clearly there's something screwy. Pardon me. <clears throat> there's something screwy going on with the 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 Har- Harvest King and what happens to the Harvest King. But the fact that his yes. family, the fact that his family is like, do it, go, is um. I think that's the one thing with it is that in the previous episode, you really only see his family when they're in the bank and he's trying to hide from them. In this one, they're like, he's going to be the Harvest King. And history shows that we never see the Harvest Kings again. You know, and it's like, right. Um, Why would they be excited about so that? I, th- I think that is the one issue I have. And at the end of the day, it's negligible, I think. I think. I think. Um, unless it's one of those things, um, and I hate to I hate to bring it up again, but one of the things about Green Acres, sorry everyone, is that <laughs> Olive, Oliver will not adapt to Hooterville, but Lisa does. Hooterville is weird. It's nothing like any other farming community or country town. Lisa adapts and becomes a part of it. Oliver never does, and I'm wondering if. His family, Marshall's family, are like that. They've adapted to it, and they're they become a part of it now. And 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 so, and Marshall is trying to still tell us that this is weird, whereas everyone else, including his family, apart from Simon and maybe the white-haired kid, now are like, this isn't weird. This is the way Erie is. And, and so, so, so Marshall is kind of like the Oliver of this show, 
in that if he would only acquiesce and say, okay, let's do this. Uh, well, he doesn't want to get become a werewolf or get eaten by a werewolf, but let's, let's you know, I get it. Um, then maybe he would stop seeing weird in everything, just in the same way that Oliver would stop being frustrated with everything and confused by everything if he just said, that's the way it is. That's the way this town is. So I... Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I. 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 I always bring up Green Acres because I, I. I love the show. But and it's a very weird show too. Um, but yeah. I. Um, yeah. You know what? I. I really do like this episode. Yeah. My only. My only issue is I think uh, um, one that, in light of what I just said, may not matter anymore, um, because I think his family thinks that he's going to be okay. Because they've accepted the town in their minds, I think, maybe. Mm. Right. All right. So having, I don't know where I went there. Amy, what else did you, what, what else did you love about it? Um, I liked uh, the ending where John Astin is back and they make a potion. <laughs> and one of the ingredients was uh, Vlad the Impaler's eye. I thought that oh, was yes. pretty funny. You can't, and doesn't um, he say, and doesn't he say something like... Chicken's blood and... Doesn't he say something like, uh, you, can't, you can't find this easy, or you can't get a lot of these, or something like that? Right. <laughs> and then he makes it like he's making a, you know, like a shake or a soda, like he does it for his job when he makes them milkshakes or whatever. He puts a little whipped cream on the top, and it's, you know, full of blood and eyeballs and all kinds of things. So I thought yes. that was kind of funny. And I do like that they And have, the fact that they it? would go to him is... Like he's the trustworthy adult in uh, <laughs> in the town. I like that they have what is it like the 1992 Werewolf Companion. <laughs> I I would yep. like to own a copy of that. Yeah, I, yeah. There's a lot of great stuff. I like. There, there's a moment where the gray-haired, white-haired, gray-haired kid is in the library looking at old newspapers, and just stop, stop your pause, whatever it is you're watching. And look at all the books that are on the shelf. They are all wolf-related or werewolf-related or some sort of something like that related. And it's it's really cool to see. I mean, they're really... In the same way that, like, the Hole in the Head gang had just had the Hitchcock mill and then everything else was kind of, not fresh, but kind of new this one is very specifically like saying we're doing this is our werewolf episode and we know about all the other werewolf and and my crazy dog is scraping away at the ground george knock it off um uh yeah in the same way that uh in in, yeah i'll 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 say it again uh and he started again george would you would you give a brother a break here um uh in in the in the way that Hole in the Head Gang kind of has the Hitchcock mill, but then kind of introduces new stuff. This one has this new concept that, I mean, isn't it nutty that this is a town where every 13 years a young man gets fed to a werewolf and that that keeps the town. Isn't that, that's a, that's a strange town is what that is. Um, Yeah. And were the parents going along with this? Like, they showed the parents of the last kid, and they, they looked very much like the American Gothic couple. Yes. And then they seemed to be, like, I don't know, in a trance, or... Yeah. I don't know. Their behavior was odd. And then they're like, he's in Spain. But in clearly Spain. the woman is in a morning gown. 
Yes. Yeah. It was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, like what, it's, are they going along with it for the because they were farmers and that's how you get the crops and oh yeah you know which I kind of forget that Erie Indiana is in Indiana and you know there's farmers yeah. there because we rarely yeah. see farmers. We read yeah it's sort of a, it's a backlot town but then then you get uh, the farmer the moments with, with the farmers. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I liked. I, I, I think the thing, the, the best thing about this episode, apart from awesome werewolf stuff, um, and uh, the sister with, uh, you know, the green mask on her face, and uh, Simon eating pie. Uh, <laughs> Simon, who's supposed to be guarding a werewolf, deciding to eat some pie instead. Hey, yeah. hey, it, ha- it happens. I'm hungry. Like, hey, it happens. <laughs> I, I think he swear he swears <laughs> off pie. Yes, actually, I have right apple here. Pie specific. Apple pie. Yeah, I actually have circled uh, on my note page here. Pie. So yeah, that 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 must have grabbed my <laughs> attention right there. Um, I th- I think the thing about this episode is that it's just it's uh, the hole in the head gang. Uh, to 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 contrast it, I think there's a lot of stuff that happens there, and the way. Um, sort of the background of Grungy Bill and the introduction of the gray-haired kid and the background, what little there is of the gray-haired kid. There's a lot of stuff happening. This one is just, I think, fun. It's just like, it's there's a lottery and then there's a werewolf and then the John Aston shows up with a silver, he has one silver bullet. And then, you know, I think it's it's a fun episode. And yeah, you know what? I, I it, it's it's weird. One of the things about when whenever we discuss episodes like this is sometimes I don't fully know what I think about an episode until I talk to someone about it. And I, talking to you about it, I would put this up there. I would put this. Let's do a top four. Now I think I would put this up okay. in there. I I would almost say maybe show someone foreverwhere if the world of stuff is in foreverwhere. I think it is. It might be. And then maybe show them these. Because these are really great uh, episodes. Uh, uh, Holding the Head Gang and, and Mr. Cheney, I think, are, are really great ones. Um, what, what else What else do you have on this one? Oh, well, when they have only one silver bullet, I was, I was wondering how they were going to solve that problem. And the fact that they just kind of shot him in the toe and that cured him from, from being a werewolf. I was like, yeah. oh. Well, that's that's a kid friendly way to do it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I like that. I, it's sort of like um, uh, uh, you know, uh, with um, jeez, what am I trying to say? Oh, uh, like zombies, uh, or or you you know, like uh, back when I was a kid. Oh, so long ago. But, but back when I was a kid, when Night of the Living Dead. When I was very young and I first read about Night of the Living Dead, which I think was right before Dawn of the Dead came out, the zombies were referred to as ghouls. They weren't zombies, but they became zombies after Dawn of the Dead. And um, there's something about the way the original rules behind killing the ghouls um, uh, got sort of shifted and changed like with um shoot him in the head and then evil dead it's like you have to dismember them and then you know with return of living dead <laughs> the, the things expand you know like the the mythos expands so i like this concept that if you sort of 
vaguely shoot a werewolf with a silver bullet, you can cure him. I, I would love, I mean, it's Mr. Cheney. I would have loved if Lawrence Talbot had had that. He, he, he does get cured in uh, House of Dracula, but I would have loved if he had had something like that where someone could have nicked him with a silver bullet and that would have cured him. I, I, I like that concept. That's a fun it's a fun yeah. concept, and I also like I also like the concept that um, John Aston making you a really awful milkshake that the gray-haired kid can't stop laughing at as it's being prepared um, can can save you. Um, yeah, this 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 is yeah this is another great episode, folks. Yeah, yeah. I think I do like the sister saying that she thought the werewolf was a giant raccoon. Eh, well, there you go. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so um any any yeah, any last thoughts on this episode? No, I really liked it. So I like the direction the show is going. They seem to be, you know, bringing in more characters and you know, expanding a little bit. So yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. One of my favorites uh, again. I well I'll ask Amy where can we find you online? Uh you can find me on Instagram at Amy underscore the underscore conqueror. If you want to, the episode is fantastic, but at the very end, well, the closing credits, they do an extended screaming sequence on the sister with a banana in her hand, which is a lot of fun. Um, but uh, the, the right before that, there is a great moment where you see um, Marshall has been cured. Spoiler, Marshall's not a werewolf. As far as we know, he might become a werewolf in later episodes. I don't know. But the he has, the episode ends with, when the full moon strikes, he has these huge mutton chops, which are hilarious. <laughs> so, and, and and I will ask one more thing, and maybe maybe Amy and I will discuss this next time. We're going to wrap this up right now. I was always wondering. This was just a werewolf thing with me. So the full moon comes out. The werewolf cha- man changes into a man woman changes into a werewolf. But when the clouds go behind the full moon. In this episode, he changes back. But does that is that actually the way it works, or am I thinking too far into it? I don't know. Have you ever thought about that, Amy? If, if when you see, I, I think that happens in cartoons quite a bit. Yes, yes, like Scooby Doo or something. Or well, no, Scooby Doo they're never yeah. werewolves. But no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I I agree. Yeah, I think that's a cartoon thing. So maybe in a kind of a kids show that would work. So, but I would say like right. you're hard, you're hardly a good werewolf. Jesus, if you're in Eastern Europe and a full moon comes out there, <laughs> come on. I mean that's nutty. That's you're going to be changing back and forth every ten minutes. You know, you got to be like an equator werewolf in order to get the full thing. Um, so I that, that was a tangent. I didn't mean to go on, folks. But um, I will let everyone take a deep breath, and we are going to go. I think to a little bit of. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans. Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. 
Bourbon Street Beat, Episode 25, Wall of Silence, originally aired March 28th, 1960, directed by Charles R. Rondow, Rondow, written by Sam Ross. We start off in sort of a bayou-y kind of spot, uh, where there are several gentlemen with accents of some sort, which aren't really sort of familiar to the area, discussing something of a delicate nature two older gentlemen like in a bar right on the edge of the water they don't seem one of them just wants the other one to shut up and mind his own business let things go as they're going the other one says no no this can't stand and he goes to bourbon street to see rex and talk to him about something or other he's scared away at the last moment but rex knows where he came from so he goes out to the bayou and he hits this wall of silence uh, this community of people there, something is going on. Something has them scared. No one will talk. Then the old man is found dead with a suicide note nearby. So apparently he committed suicide. No one really believes it. But there is something happening in the town. There's a very familiar face in the town, which we will talk about. We know now that whatever this force is, whatever it is that happened happening in this place is willing to kill for it so rex has to figure out what's going on get the wall of silence to raise so he can try to save these people before someone else dies and it all may have something to do with the little boy i'll leave it there listen to a blast mitchell and i are on the other side you all hear that that was the wall of silence it may come into play a little bit later (laughs) oh did did you hear that 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 guy there that's that's the mitchell i told you about earlier mitchell hadley how are you sir i am well daniel my boy how are you i'm doing okay a little tired today it's a little a little warm here uh but then it's summer and it's los angeles and that's the kind of that's the kind of junk that happens to us during the summer there's nothing like a dose of Bourbon Street beat to keep you going oh, here. Yeah, to, to going down to the the bayou or the well, no, uh, the, the down to the bayou ish in this. Where are we in this one? I, I uh, somewhere or other, somewhere fun. Uh, yes, I think uh, the, I think if I'm not mistaken, we are somewhere in Louisiana. Yeah, perfect. Although, although it will be as as we devolve into the plot, it will be easy to understand why there could be some confusion on that point. Yes, yes. So let's let's oh well let's get started. Wall of Silence, uh, episode twenty five. Yes. Uh, wow, uh, Mitchell, what are your what are your thoughts? Well, you know, as you mentioned, we're about we are twenty five episodes in with this one, and uh, the the characters are still fresh and the stories are still entertaining. I think that um, we're seeing from time to time, as is the case with this episode, some familiar tropes or cliches coming in. I think tropes in this case, because what we're looking at is the prototypical town with the wall of silence and they're suspicious of outsiders they are uh, hesitant to tell anybody you get the feeling that the bayou is just seething with secrets of one kind or another and everybody is tossing off sideward glances and they have these significant pauses in what they're saying so that in and of itself is is 
fairly typical. I actually just saw an episode of Canon the other night that uh, had the same thing. This uh, small town. There's even even um, a, an entry on. Uh, on uh, TV without pity about the trope of the small town. And that's what we have here. So what differentiates, I think, good shows from bad shows or good episodes from bad episodes is what you do with an idea like that. And um, while this one doesn't completely hold together as a plot, it's it's still fun and it is still we see some great byplay between our regulars and uh we see both rex and cal um doing doing their job in the way we've come to expect it and oh yeah getting conked on the head every once in a while but i think that this this was uh for me a fun episode to watch it may not have been as solid a mystery or an investigation as some of them but there again it wasn't bad at that either it was though mostly fun i think I, I agree. I, I sort of the first thing I thought was that, um, I, yeah, I thought of the like you said that the previous ones where they go to a town where everyone's sil- uh, everyone's very silent. Or um, I even thought of like the previous episode, Neon Nightmare, with um, uh, Cal going to that one town where everyone's yes. creepy and everything like that. So it, so it almost did. Uh, there were a couple moments where it almost did border on the. I think we're just recycling what's been going on, but I'm going to go with tropes. Rather than um, this, this, this being what the show does, variations of. Yeah, I, I like that. Well, I was just going to say that I, I, I think, I think that is it because um, if, if it was purely a cliche, then I think we would get some pretty standard uh, resolution to it, and that isn't quite what we've got here. So I think it's nice that they're simply taking an old standby and actually doing something with it. Yeah, uh, one of the, one of the things I like with it is as it goes along and you learn why these people are being blackmailed, you mix that in with some fun detective work involving putting gardenias in a package and sending it to <laughs> like a, and it's and so and it's great because as pardon me as 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 Rex and you know I still almost get them wrong sometimes when I say Rex or Cal I still have to I think I think if I could just think Calhoun immediately I'd know who I was thinking of but I always go by the first name and I Well you know what's pause. what's confusing for me is that uh, we watch 77 Sunset Strip every Friday night here oh, yes. yeah. and right now um Richard oh. Long is playing Rex on 77 cents yes. a strip. So I'm seeing him in two different series playing the same character. Yeah. And it is, it is just, it's funny to see him back in, uh, the bayou when lately I've been seeing him out on the strip. Yeah. 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 I, I'd like to see those. Are they, are they good episodes? I imagine they are. They are. They are. They're, they're, they're a lot of fun and, uh, he's pretty much the same wrecks that we see in uh, in uh, BSB the only the only thing is that at least as far as we have gotten in in this season that he's in there hasn't been any reference to his previous tour of duty if you will in New Orleans and I don't know if they bring that into the series or not and if if anybody out there does know don't tell me I want to find it out for myself uh, yeah you like yeah yeah, but they, they, they just haven't referred to it so far. So it is um, it is a fun, if somewhat uh, disorienting experience at yeah. first to see that. 
I wonder. I wonder if that'll be like the uh, the the uh, last season of Beverly Hillbillies and last season of Green Acres, where you know all those characters met a season or two before, but they <laughs> met through Petticoat Junction, and then the moment Petticoat Junction is canceled, there's sort of a thing where the shows don't really t- they 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 don't touch each other or mention sort of one another anymore when previously they did. They just don't have the uh, connector anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, there's that one great episode where Lisa goes on a on a vacation from Oliver, and Mr. Haney sells um, Oliver a um, a picture of the Beverly Hillbillies that lights up at night to keep you company. <laughs> and so you get to see where Oliver goes into bed. It's storming outside. Lisa keeps calling him. He keeps going up the pole, and he gets in bed. Finally, closes his eyes, and then all of a sudden the room lights up. He opens his eyes, and then it cuts to a close up of the Clampets. <laughs> but that kind of thing stops after which is a bit of a tangent but i'm, I'm wondering i'd love it if they they he mentioned bourbon street that would be nice yeah, i'm yeah. i'm hoping he does but again if for those of you out there listening who say well you you knucklehead hadley of course <laughs> he does or of course he doesn't don't tell me i don't yes, want to yes, know yes, i want yes. i want the pleasure of discovering yes, no, it for myself no spoilers on this 60-year-old thing. No spoilers. Yes, no spoilers. exactly. This uh, is no spoiler neighborhood. Yeah, yes. And one of the things you say about the tropes that I like is the that what distinguishes the good show from the bad show or just the mediocre show is the way they use the tropes. And I have a book called, jeez, um, I forget what it's called. Everyone, uh, Mitchell's going to talk to you for five seconds while I lean over here. The weather tonight in Minneapolis is actually quite nice. It's in the low 80s. The humidity is down a bit from the previous few days. And uh, I'm looking right now at a uh, very pleasant evening. We're going to have a beautiful sunset. Our patio lights are on. The wind has died down. I happen to be inside right now doing a podcast with my good friend. But you know what? It's all worth it because we have lots of summer nights, but there's only occasionally time when you can hang out with your friends. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was uh, that's staying in. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, uh, it's television. The book is called Television Comedy Series. Ah. I, I don't know if you know the book. It's it's uh, it, McFarland put it out in the mid '80s. It's like 800 pages long. It's a big purple book. Uh, written by two guys named Krinsky and Eisner. And Mm. in the opening chapter, they list, like, they said, as we watched all these sitcoms, we saw certain plots reappear. They don't call them tropes. Um, And they actually have a list of, like, 70 plots. They're like, you know, someone gets amnesia. Two people get handcuffed together. Someone has a double. That's brilliant. You know, the wedding, the holiday episode. And to me, it's, it's like this with detective stories. Um, and if I want to go off on another tangent, I'd say I just started watching Canon for the first time ever about two weeks ago, and I'm really enjoying it. But I don't think we should go off on that tangent. No, that's, that, that is another show for another day because that is a fun series to do. And I, I think that so much of it is because of uh, Bill Conrad. Yes, yes, he's, he's so good. He's so good. Mm. Um, and, and so, uh, so yeah, what, what, do I th- what do I think of this episode? I think it's... It's a, it's kind of an average episode of Bourbon Street Beat, but as I think Bourbon Street Beat is an above-average show so far, I think if you like the show, you're going to like the episode. I do think, yeah, the the mystery, it's it's like, it's it's I don't know, it's it's, and I I don't 
I don't. Again, we're gonna not 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 gonna spoil it, but there are, there are points when the mystery, as it were, is sort of a, feels to me a little overcomplicated. But then there are moments when it's not complicated enough, and I wish I could explain more what I mean by <laughs> that. But but it's sort of like it's it's one of those where you can watch the whole thing, you get to the end, and you go yeah. But if you turn away for a moment, there are certain moments when you'll miss something important that you kind of didn't expect. And it's, um, and I really can't explain it, um, uh, because we don't want to spoil it. And, and Mitchell, if you don't know, if you, if, if I'm not making any sense, it could, it could be because I'm trying not to, uh, I feel like I'll spoil something if I go too much. Do I, do, do we, do we want to discuss not what the secret is that this town has to hide, but do we want to discuss what the townspeople are? I think so. I okay. Think so. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Because yeah. what they they're, they're the, and this is where you kind of have to suspend disbelief for a little bit. I think that the the, the town is comprised of what are evidently uh, refugees from an unspecified communist country somewhere in the Balkans. And um, I'm I'm not aware, although I'm certainly open to education. I, if you don't learn something new every day, it's a wasted day. But I'm not aware that there were large groups of Eastern European communist refugees being relocated to the bayou after uh, World War II. I could be wrong. But um, that is the the premise you've got. So you've got a group of people who truly are outsiders. They're not just people who live in the small town, but they are outsiders in a country which they clearly revere for having done so much to help them escape the tyranny of communism, but they're not part of it yet. yet and they may they may never be part of it but they're they're they they have become outsiders in their own country which is not really their own country yes and and if you want to think of the sort of people they are i mean it's a mix of um it's almost like there were occasional moments when i thought like uh we were seeing like a sort of a mix of like a like a gypsy folk from yes like, a mix with like um the sort of vague the European people from like the universal horror films of the thirties and forties, <laughs> you know, in, um, Fakistan or wherever it is, they set these things, you know, and, mm -hmm. and one of the so countries that mission impossible is always in. Yes. Yes. You know, and, and one of those, you know, like the, one of those places where they have a big festival and then suddenly the Frankenstein monster is walking down the street yep. and yep. Lawrence Talbot runs out of the, the a house and, and stops him kind of thing. That that's sort of what and transplant that to a bayou, Location where you actually have Bayou uh, people mixed in with them who are unique enough themselves. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. and, well, there's a scene. There's a scene early on where in the the first few scenes that they, they have this discussion going on in in a bar. The, the the locals are talking about, or they are at least alluding to their problem. And you have this zither music going on in the background, and my wife who's watching it with me, she says, I didn't know the zither was a native Cajun instrument. And then we, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, we find out why the zither's there. But I'll tell you, I spent the first 20 minutes waiting for Orson Welles to walk out of the shadows somewhere because <laughs> I was convinced that what we were really seeing was Harry Lime in yes, Louisiana. Yes, yes. I, well, I was thinking of, um, with the music playing as these guys are talking, I was thinking of the... Um, 
is it the the Greek instrument, the berzuki? Yeah, or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm just thinking of the cheese shop sketch from Monty Python, <laughs> where John Cleese goes in, and there's a guy playing a barzuki, and two men are are dancing. And during most of the scene, as John Cleese is getting more and more annoyed by the fact that they don't have an ounce of cheese in the cheese shop, this music <laughs> just keeps playing and playing and playing until he shut that bloody bazooki off. And and that's that's kind of what it reminds. Probably not, you know. <laughs> you know what you should be thinking right there but you know your mind goes to different places but it, I, it does it yeah, does when uh, when you're feeling good your mind just kind of wanders sometimes yeah you got you got here's the thing like i'm sure you get this mitchell you you have so much uh, pop culture you especially have so much pop culture stuff that you absorb when you're when you're watching stuff i know you probably get these moments where you think not inappropriate i, I don't mean inappropriate like mm-hmm. oh mitchell's being naughty again <laughs> that's another podcast that's another that's well yes yeah, so that's Dark. another episode too that's yes. coming up i think in about uh, three or four weeks yeah, folks, yes so. yes yes um <laughs> Uh, but but just the the thing where like 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 I said like I was hearing that zither music and hearing these guys talking and I thought of the cheese shop sketch mm-hmm. you know you get these these associations and it's fun too if you, if you write or you do stuff like this you can present people with those associations and let it roll um, I I was uh, one thing about the Eastern European people going to that area is that and this isn't quite the same area but um, when my mom and her twin sister and my grandparents came over from Poland, which in 1947, which was right after the war, so Poland was kind of more or less like oh. Soviet Union, Germany. It yeah. wasn't really Poland at all. And and they were just in, in misery there. When they came over, they settled first in Little Rock, Arkansas. Hmm. So well, that's that, interesting. Yeah, they were there... Or, or was it? I'm sorry. No, my mom was born 47. This was 52. I apologize. Um, that was that was the earliest they could get out of there. Um, and uh, they were in Little Rock for like a year or two. And my other aunt, my aunt Chris, who sadly has passed on, um, uh, she was born in Little Rock. And then in the mid 50s, they moved to Rochester, New York, on Fairbanks Street, and actually moved in across the street. They were the Voitals. They moved in across the street from a family, the Budniks, who had five kids. And my ma liked one of their kids. Well, well, I, I don't say like, like my ma liked one of their kids. My ma was the same age as the kids. I didn't mean this, that to sound. Suddenly it's Mitchell after dark again. <laughs> oh, dear. But you know what I mean. My, you know, my, my mom was like eight. And they, my, my dad was like. 10 and they lived across the street mm-hmm. from each other and they'd play uh, together all the time and stuff your, you know, in other words you, your mom as a child played with the children uh, across the street and was yes. particularly drawn to one specific little boy that uh, yes, yes. just captured her heart and they were both they were both polish very polish families except my dad's side came over at the start of the 20th century oh. so so it was basically and at that point, my uncle Raj, who's the person who introduced me to Doctor Who and Monty Python and Sherlock oh, Holmes, good and the man, Moody, and and the Moody Blues and a few other oh. bands, oh, oh. Um, he he hadn't been born yet. He he was the latest. I know what's funny, and this is this tangent is going to stop. But this this is um, my my uncle Raj worked all his life at Xerox. He was like a big man at Xerox, huh. and he retired like five years ago. And now he does set designs 
for plays and productions really? in Rochester, New York. He sends me whenever he's like, I just did these designs for sets for a Rocky Horror Picture Show production. You know, wow. I was like these sets for uh, Into the Wood, you know, and he just and so that's what he does now. He builds he yeah, it's, I, I won't go into it too deep. What an interesting life, though. Yeah, yeah, he's had a heck of a life. And like I said, you know, I would go over his place, and he'd be he'd hand me a book and say, "You might like this. What's Sherlock Holmes? Take it home and read it." And you know, I'd come back a week later and be like, "More, more, more." Um, but yeah, so that so that's how my my mom's side of the family uh, they they came over and landed in Little Rock, which isn't which is closer to the Bayou than it is to Rochester, New York, which is near Niagara Falls. So. So that that I don't know how often that happened. It may have only been um, the four Voitals from Poland and these people in Bourbon Street beat, but maybe that's enough. <laughs> maybe that's enough. So so my yeah my overall thought in the episode is this is one of those if you like the show you'll enjoy it. It does feel a bit overly familiar, but I think with the re- uh, no they're not they're not refugees they they um, oh, I can't really go too far into that um, but with the with the the Bayou people mixed with the fun uh, stuff with the postal uh, stuff, yes. um, I, I think makes for enough. Like we're still trying, you know. We're not. Mm-hmm. No one's voting it in yet. And there, and there's there's a really nice uh, subplot here in the activity that Cal has because this this is a Rex episode. But mo- one of the things that you'll notice about Bourbon Street Beat, in contrast perhaps to uh, Sunset Strip or some of the other Warner's detective shows, is that even though one of the characters is dominant, it's very rare that the other doesn't make some kind of an appearance and actually play some kind of a significant role. And that's what happens in this one when uh, Rex is able to get a message off to Cal. And... um, it Cal just takes charge of the yes. situation in yes. a way that it, I'm I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, there is the man that I want uh, watching my back. Yes, yes. Because he is he he just he takes charge in a way that um, he doesn't have time to ask. He doesn't have time to to confirm anything. He just does what he knows needs to be done and does it does it in a way that that indicates he's given this a little bit of thought. He isn't just reacting. And um, it, it's really a nice touch. I think that this is another another way that they're kind of developing Cal's character, and you find yourself feeling more and more warm toward him as the series goes on. Not that the, you don't, because these guys, as we've said before, are are immensely likable guys but you feel this surge of admiration if i'm not being too hokey about it in the way cal handles these situations when he is not the primary uh Mm -hmm. uh, focus of the the episode and we will see that again in a couple of other in a in in a an episode a couple of episodes later where he does something similar and it's really a nice nice way of doing things and it's nice the way that both melody and um kenny kenny are brought into um into cal's plan as well yeah i i think the thing i i like about it is that um when they when um uh, uh cal joins in it's it's sort of a thing where it's I forget exactly what it is, but it's sort of like well, Cal's the reason why Cal isn't involved is because he has another case, 
you know, and he's got something else to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what, but when Rex contacts him and says, we need to do something regarding this, boom, he's got it. And he takes care of it. And he comes yep. up with a really good idea and they sort of follow the idea down the line and it, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, spoiler, it helps save the day. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think we can get away with that one. Yes, that that one will work. Saves the day. <laughs> Generally, that's going to be. I don't think there are a lot if they don't save that. I don't remember, really. I mean, there are some slightly semi-tragic-y ones, but uh, I think generally it's a save the day here. Um, now, let us talk. Can we talk about um, one of the uh, – because, as always, there's a fine cast in the episode. Um, yes. Can, Kenny gets to very meet a, nice cast. Kenny gets to meet a very lovely gal who works like an answering service or something like that. And I only bring her up <laughs> because of future events. And I'm just going to leave it right there. Yeah. Um, uh, but may I bring up? Uh, I, I think you know the the guest actor I'm going to bring up here. That would be one of the non. Um, uh, Eastern European people living around there who is, is has fallen in love with is it oh what is her name what is the gal's name it's not Anna Roxanne? Is it Lorraine no is it Ro- 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 I, I, is, as I recall in her in the cast list I think it's Anna 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 is it Anna, Anna. okay all yes. right okay yeah so um so there's a gal named Anna who's one of the the um the, the immigrants and she has a good friend who I want to say his name is doesn't matter who his name is. It's the Virginian, is who it is. I think his name is Joe or Fred or something yes. like that. But it's it's the Virginian. It's it's the Virginian. And I like to think of the Virginian as maybe one of those characters who's like because they never give him a name like the Doctor. Maybe you know the Virginian is uh, one of the Doctor's incarnations that we haven't seen. You know, and and this is just why does he show up here? Say. Because he knows these he knows these people need help. He doesn't want to get involved too much, but he gets in there and then he hops back, puts on a purple shirt, and a nice vest, and spends nine years in the late nineteenth century. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I want to ask. So so it was so great to see James Drury, um, the Virginia. Yes. And um, now I got to ask. Um, it is is it your wife's friend? Who has, keeps seeing the Virginian, but not the Virginian? Is that am yes, I right yes, there? So, um, friend, friend, yes, friend of both of both of ours, and we we were at her home one night and sat through two complete episodes, 180 minutes of the Virginian, and he was not in either episode, <laughs> and she kept asking. Is this? She'd point to Lee J. Cobb. Is that the Virginian? No, that's that's somebody else. Um, Doug McClure. Is that the Virginian? No, that is uh, someone else. She's the only person I'm aware of, perhaps living, who has seen multiple episodes of the Virginian, but has never seen the title character. I I mean I I'd love I'd love it if she was in the room with you when you happen to be watching this episode, but I doubt that. That's that's well, too, she, that's kids she too wasn't, far. but. Yeah, I, she wasn't, but when that when he came on, I paused the screen, took a screenshot of it on my phone, called her up and said, this is the Virginian. Yes. I think Fine. she appreciated it. <laughs> I did have to remind her about what the Virginian was, but yes. then once she remembered what I was talking about, she did appreciate it. 
Yes, yeah. But and then we've been friends for a long time, so she's used to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, 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 the thing I like um, uh, on James Drury's website, he has um, a little um, sort of motto, a mantra kind of thing, the cowboy way, which is which is very Virginian, uh. Uh, which is if it's not true, don't say it. If it's not yours, don't mm. take it. If it's not right, don't do it. Which I think is awesome, and which is very Virginian, and which is very Rex and Cal. Yes. 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 Uh, yes, I and, would agree. And so, um, all right, let, let's make a scan through our notes. We've gone off on a couple of tangents here, but it's, a, it's a, I think it's a, it's a tangent-worthy episode. What, what else do you have? On I this think one? so, yes. Well, there's a really nice uh, scene right at the very beginning where uh, Stanek, that's Jay Novello, yes. who's a wonderful character actor, and um, he's kind of the um, starts the episode off because he originally comes to Rex for help, and then something happens that we won't get to. But he's the catalyst for this, and he's sitting in the in the bar. He's talking with uh, his his friend, the Count, the zither music is going on in the background, and he basically says, I've decided that we need to hire a private detective to find out what we can't, well, you, to find out who is doing this. And, and the Count makes this great uh, response that is essentially, how can detectives find out when we can't find out ourselves? And I'm thinking to myself, it's because they're detectives. They their yeah. job is to find out things that other yes. people can't find out. Yes. It's, and it, you're just this, sitting. This is not. I no, I've, say, I've been watching too much mystery science theater at this point. <laughs> you're just sitting when I in start, a bar. It's one yeah. thing to riff shows. Yeah, it, it's one thing to riff shows that uh, that that you don't like. I do that all the time. But when you start riffing shows that you love, then you've got a problem. You you've got a problem that perhaps requires some kind of medication or therapy. <laughs> but that, you know, I, huh? Well, how do detectives find out when we can't find out? They're professionals, you're amateurs. It's it's yes. just a it's a it struck me as a very funny, unintentionally probably <laughs> an unintentionally funny line. But um, one of the things we also find out in this episode is that Rex has a complete aversion to the idea of marriage. Yes. When it uh, when when his flame of the episode even starts to suggest something in that direction rex gets very nervous and that is why he is so eager to take a case that he might not otherwise have taken when he finds out that it is going to take him to the wall of silence yes. uh he becomes very eager all of a sudden to go on the road and do this mm -hmm. yeah and i i feel so bad because i didn't Look up the uh, the actress who he's making out with, sort of in the in the absinthe house there. But she looks she looks so familiar. And Mike, if uh, my favorite commenter commentator commenter on the site, if you're listening to this, yes, I didn't look up who it was um, be, because the blonde she's blonde, she's beautiful, <laughs> and I just like I I sat there going, I know who she is, I know who she is, I have to look her up. I'm trying to look her up now. We're in the middle of recording. I this I shouldn't you're, be doing this. I should have done this ages yeah. ago. Well, I'm 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 right with you there. I, was it was it Helen? Was it the actress that plays Helen that we're talking about? It wasn't Diane McBain, was it? 
Um, gosh, that could be. You know what we'll do, folks? We'll make it a cliffhanger. Well, we're, we won't stop right here, but we'll make it a cliffhanger. Who, who the heck, who the heck uh, that was? Yes, because please tune in next week at the same time, same back channel, and yes. we'll have the answer for it. And we'll give you the information we should have researched. I should have researched. <laughs> and, um, but uh, <laughs> well, me, we'll, we'll share the blame on that. <laughs> so let, let me see uh, <laughs> uh, my notes here. Absinthe, J.R. Buchanan. Yeah, it's. A, I, I don't really have much more on it because I think, I realized most of my notes came later in the episode when we got to the point where um, um, I should have uh, – we're not – we're trying not to spoil. But it is nice to see yeah. – I re- the th- one of the things I really like about James Drury's character, and I, I don't know if this is a – oh, gosh. Um, this might be a spoiler. But I like the fact that when it starts off, he seems to be part of this, like, wall of silence. But then at a certain point, he's like, nope. And he's there, and he visits. He visits Rex, and he's like, "Nope, I'm. We're gonna find out what's going on. I this can't go on any longer." Yeah, it it kind of reinforces his status that he's he's with the group, but not necessarily part of the group. And because yes. of that, he doesn't necessarily share their particular outlook on things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, I think he says that at one point when when he's he's sort of describing himself to Rex. Yeah, he's uh, a good see. character. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah, yeah. He's I th- I think he's a, he's a really good actor. He's wonderful as the Virginian, and uh, it was so nice to see him in this um, about uh, what a year and a half before the Virginian begins. Yeah. Uh, uh, what else do you have on this? I think I'm actually I'm actually good. Well, I have a terrible joke about absinthe, and that's about uh, everything that that I have because absinthe does play a, a conversational role in the story and it um it really was was nice to see them talking about absinthe because as you know absinthe makes the heart grow fonder i left that little space there that's the second wall of silence <laughs> and that's a wall of silence where i may have inserted a laugh track or i may have not and you're not gonna. There might be two. There might be two versions of this episode floating around. One with hysterical laughter, and one with silence. I'm not gonna say a word. I'm yes. not gonna say a word. I'm not gonna say a word. It's um. Now I'm in the cone of silence now. <laughs> oh, what are the best sitcom or the wall of shame? Either one. Oh. There. <laughs> all right. Um. All right. So if if I guess if that's it on this one, uh, Mitchell. Um. Where, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me online at it's about TV, I-T-S-A-B-O-U-T-T-V.com. Awesome. And I guess, uh, Mitchell, will you join me in closing out uh, this discussion? Um, and oddly enough, uh, let's um, we'll discuss this more uh, later, but one of our main characters won't be in the next few episodes. And so we're going to put up the wall of silence and a moment of sounds for this character not being around. Would you join me? I would be proud to. All right, let's do it. The United States of America would like to invite you to come spy with me. Out of the ordinary 
Directed by Phil Bondelli, written by William Reed Woodfield, who was like the executive story editor or something like that on the show. It aired January 22nd, 6th, sorry, 1984. And I kept thinking, every time the title pops up on the screen, I kept thinking it was Oil with an exclamation point. So it was almost like it was going to be a musical or something. Oil! Hey! And everyone's going to dance and sing about oil. It's not. It's just the word oil. And to talk oil with me, I have... My podcast pal, the great, the wonderful, she's everything, Amanda Reyes. Amanda, how are you? I'm really good. I'm just curious if you um, are ready to take the invitation for a short vacation. I am. And you know what? Oddly enough, I was the one guy who didn't get a year's salary to do this. Salary? Salary? Salary. Yeah, they should be paying you a year's salary to cover these shows because nobody else is doing it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I... um, I, let, let me get. Let me give you the plot. The, the plot of this one is actually fairly simple, but I'm I'm going to try to say it simply, and then we'll overcomplicate things. Uh, the basic premise is um, uh, there is a Kuwaiti uh, o, uh, U.S. owned oil field. A bunch of terrorists, Arab terrorists, um, take basically take over the oil field and put 12 Americans in like a cage in the center of the oil in the in the center of the the oil. Not, not, it's not oil field. It's a refinery or something like that. And you know, you know what I'm talking about. And they put them in this cage, and they wire it with explosives. And the head terrorist, who is back in Rome, basically says, um, "Unless the president frees eight of our brothers, who are also terrorists, who are in prison for killing a bunch of people involved with the UN, uh, unless you free our brothers by a certain time, noon on Wednesday or something like that, um, the explosives will go off." Unless I say a certain thing in my voice, and then that will deactivate everything. And so it it begins. And Lavender and S- Danny and Sandy, is it? Is that right? Is Did I get that right? There? It's KC. KC, son of a... Ugh. You always say the wrong Why name, I say... and I don't know if that's a joke. I don't know either anymore. Cause, uh, okay, I'm going to write that down. What was it, Casey? Yes. Okay. Son of a biscuit. Okay. So uh, the gang is called in, and they're basically. um, uh, I think I think Lavender uh, and this guy, the head the head terrorist uh, in Rome, uh, they know each other. Not like socially. I think just through government things. 
And no, I think they met on Tinder, actually. <laughs> I would I would love to have read that exchange. So they they call in this uh, the the group. They call in the group of people, and they call in. Let's see. They call in the world's fastest digger, <laughs> played by played by Clue Gulliger. Yay! Sake. Yay! Um, and he's I forget what his character's name. It's like Bobby Reed. It's Will Willie Earl Slocum. Willie, yes, yes. Um, uh, they call in a professor. Who is uh, who spent two years um, ex- uh, not excavating but but mapping out the catacombs underneath Rome, um, and the reason why they need her is because one she she has it all mapped out in a in a notebook, and two um, the uh, the place where the terrorist is staying is on top of one of the catacombs, so you know you can see how that would be helpful, and of course that is, the the professor would be played by the wonderful. At Pamela Shoup. She's not, Susan is gone from the credit on this one, but it's the great Pamela Shoup. Uh, then there is, and I forget the actor's name, the con man actor. Oh, that's Gregory Sierra, who I guess I know best from either Barney Miller and or Sanford and Son. Yes, yes, yes. And he plays uh, he plays an Arab con man, who are they, they are going to uh, have him pull the ultimate con-ish. Uh, and then the last group, unless I'm forgetting someone, and I always tend to forget someone, um, there's a little old lady who's a terrible driver. I'm kidding. No, that was a previous no. episode. Um, it's Christopher Knight and his uh, – it's a couple. And he's Christopher Knight and she – and I didn't look up her name, but I know you did, I think. Yeah, it's Deborah Dalton, and they play Hank and Robbie, which is interesting. Totten is her last name, and they are special effects artists. They're the best special effects artists in all yes. of Hollywood, and they do all the great commercials with spaceships. Yes, yeah, spaceships. And um, – uh, and so they're there to do a very specific special effect, and uh, and and the way it sort of breaks down is they they rent a portion of an old studio, um, an old Italian film studio, and I was hoping it would have been like that studio where they shot all the Fulci films and everything. Yeah. But it's it's just like it's just like a random set in a soundstage somewhere in Hollywood. But it's a very specifically a jail slash prison set. So um, the uh, the con man is getting up to something. He's seen sharpening a sword, and they're talking about how to make the the, the prison set look weirder uh, or more unpleasant. While the couple are working on a special effect, and meanwhile the rest of the gang, well, Lavender is actually made his presence known to the head terrorist, and the the terrorist sends a bunch of his assassins after um, uh, uh, Lavender to kill him, and it's not quite. Uh, Wiley Coyote Roadrunner style stuff, but it almost is. Well, there's a lot of telephone harassment in this episode, (laughs) which I love because, like, he yells at uh, the terrorist who I think is Ahmed Al Morik, played by Christopher Marr. I think that's the character's name, and and he hangs up on him, and then and then the terrorist looks at the phone, like, "How dare you?" And then there's a part, there's another part where he's got a he's on the phone, but it's actually a ruse. It's a film reel that they think they're watching Mm -hmm. to try to. We'll talk about all of it, but there's a lot of phone interaction. Action in this movie, in this episode, and it's it's pretty uh, amazing. Yeah, and so while, while Lavender is is sort of uh, interacting with with Ahmed and bugging him, basically, um, yeah. uh, 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 the rest of the gang. Um, uh, wait a minute, Casey, Danny, uh, uh, Clue Gulliger, and Pamela Shoup are all working their way into the catacombs because they have to get to a certain spot by a certain time, and and. In the end, I'll just say the the what they have to do is because I know what you're thinking. I mentioned that well, it has to be said in my own voice. That's the only way we'll we, you'll be able to free these people uh, before the explosives go off. And you're thinking, why don't they hire someone 
to do that yeah. guy's voice. But it has to be, I guess, a specific thing, although I got a little confused by that at the end. Um, I, I, I feel like almost maybe they forgot it by the end. Well, but, but, yeah, I don't know why they didn't just get the woman from like two or three episodes ago with the, um, I'm forgetting, is it Joe Santos? Yes. You remember yeah. they had to the fake prison, yeah. mm-hmm. the death of his uh, brother-in-law? And so they got a woman to impersonate the sister, right? Yes to do the newscast voice. And so it's like, why didn't they just hire her to do Ahmed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that, that was sort of my thought. And then I thought, wait a minute, I, he, he, he does say he has to say something specific. So I yeah, guess. That's right. That's right. And, and they, they do say too. So, so what, what they're basically doing is um, they, they've got an elaborate scheme planned because they know that if they just arrest him, he's, he's never going to give up what he has to say. He'll die first. Um, uh, so they have to trick him into saying it is basically what it it comes down to. And I'll stop there because that's that's pretty much what kind of goes on in here. And I guess um I don't know, Amanda, do you want to do you want to discuss the characters? You want to dive into what you thought of the episode or, or? Well, I'll tell you what I thought first. This is probably my second favorite episode. Um, and it's probably that way because. Mr. Lavender is such a badass in this episode. He's got like yes. fist fights and he knocks this guy off the top of a building and kills him. Mm-hmm. And he's shooting people and he's like just going through Rome, just destroying these people. And it's amazing. And I love it because it's Rod Taylor. And I don't know how tall Rod Taylor is, but he seems kind of short. And like, I kind of appreciate that he's always in a suit and then here he is beating the crap out of people. You know, it's kind of a cool, like, look for him mm-hmm. and um and i thought that the action scenes in this were really really well done so whereas i i i love the episode with the ninjas and that's my favorite episode for all its goofiness i think this so far out of all the ones we've seen is the most coherent story-wise and it's also got the best action sequences like there's also this great scene where um somebody steals uh Pamela Susan Shoup's purse. And so this guy that had been sort of eyeing her at the restaurant they were eating at goes to chase him and he kind of blocks the purse snatcher from getting too far. And then Greg Evigan basically punches the purse snatcher so hard that he falls off his bike. Yes. And it's like amazing. It's a so wallop, there's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there's like all this really great, like fun, kind of 80s action-y stuff happening. And also Casey kills somebody too. She walks, she has yes. this gun and she just blows this guy away. And it's like, it's really fun. It's fast paced. I think that the actors in this episode in particular are really good. Um, and so it just falls together as like the, so far the best put together like i think when masquerade was being envisioned in the production offices that this is probably what they were hoping for and i think that they've reached it pretty well here because i was thinking about one of the things that we talked about before we started recording is that how these shows are fun to watch but the second you're they're done you're like what just happened you know that they're kind of hard to remember the stories because they're kind of convoluted and that and this and that but 80s TV wasn't necessarily always that way. So early on, we talked about how there was like a kind of a series of shows where they would people like regular people to go undercover and work for their government. And the most famous of those, of course, is Scarecrow Mrs. King. Now, Scarecrow Mrs. King, I have revisited over the years, but but, you know, I can remember very specific things about that show because of how well it's written. So I don't think it's like an 80s trope that these shows were like you watch it and forget it. I just think that maybe the writing or something wasn't quite there yet for Masquerade. Here, I think it's starting to approach what 
not Scarecrow Mrs. King, because that's a classic and, and that's so well written, but, but it's starting to get closer to, I think, making it a pretty solid show. And so I really appreciated that. And also, I'll watch Clue Gulliger in anything, and he's so great. And yes. he just shows up, and he's just Clue Gulliger. He's so great. He's got a lot of presence, and so does Gregory Sierra. Those are both two really, really strong actors that they've put in here to kind of help carry things along. And it's not to, that's not a diss against Christopher Knight or Deborah Dalton. They're both also very good in it. But Gregory Sierra and Clue Gulliger are kind of a special kind of actor to me. And they're they're the kind of people that when they're on screen – that you don't even need a set. They could be standing in front of a green screen with nothing uh-huh. on it, and they're just that good, and you just watch them. And so having them on this really, really helped. And um, and so it was just a really, really fun episode, and it was also really well done. So it's not as goofy as the Ninja episode, but it's still fun in its own way because I think it's starting to really tap into, although, and we'll talk about Cobra here in a second maybe, but it's pre it predates Cobra, but it's starting to approach that sort of 80s, um, action vibe that I really like. Maybe Delta Force might be a better example. I only bring up Cobra because the Deborah Dalton, who plays Christopher Knight's wife, was in Cobra, so that's why I'm making the connection. But um, yeah, so I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's you, you. Pretty much said exactly what I was going to say about it. It this this is my favorite alongside of the Ninja one. The Ninja <laughs> the Ninja one is goofier. This one is is I I think like you said it's it's kind of more exciting and and like the the, the image of the cage with all the people in it covered mm-hmm. in explosives in the middle of this oil refinery is one that I remembered uh, having seen this episode for the first time maybe a year ago okay. or something and, and so so that 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 stuck with me and. Um, it's I, I think yeah it's it's got good action in it yeah, and and oh yeah lavender's so good yeah that scene where he just knocks the guy off the roof and then he's on the phone to Ahmed and he's like uh, yeah if you don't want to get in any more trouble uh, send your guys over here to scrape your sniper off the ground or something like that yeah that's when he looks at the phone because he hangs up on that terrorist yes, and, yeah. and, and Ahmed looks at the phone and it's just it's so such a funny response yeah. and another thing Ahmed did that was hilarious so so Lavender wants the Red Cross to come and check on the hostages there's two things I want to say real quick um, but the uh so Ackman's like oh yeah it's gonna be like an undercover agent or something and he's like no no you can check all their stuff I just need to make sure that they're okay and so he's like well I'm gonna let them in but it's your responsibility Lavender and I'm like what terrorist it's your responsibility like that's such a that's like a thing you say in an after school special you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. like it's such a weird dialogue but the other thing about this episode that I think struck me uh, and maybe makes it stand out a little and maybe, I don't know if you had the same feeling and I don't want to get too deep into politics but when they started broadcasting at the beginning I instantly thought of ISIS oh sure yeah and, and, I, and I, it, it kind of left it a chill in me yes. because it was sort of foreshadowing this terrorist group that would do things online and broadcast these things to, to people and it's and have these hostages where you can see them on your screen. And so like the idea of what's happening is also, I think kind of relevant. So that might help new viewers maybe relate to this episode better, but, um, but yeah, I'm sorry. Just anyway, the telephone stuff is great. That's really where it's going. (laughs) That, that, that was my thought too, is cause you know, the, um, uh, the, the Soviet cold war stuff with, with whatever's, whatever's happening with Russia now is, is, um, is you know obviously is relevant, but but sort of the the uh, Cold War Soviets were their very own specific thing. And yeah. You kind of look back on them now. You know all these big 
gruff guys um, with the thick accents, you know, with vodka and, um, you know, our guys running circles around them in the TV shows and stuff. And then you get, like, the Yakuza who probably still need to be explained to some people who would watch it. And then ninjas, which, you know, a lot of people know ninjas, but there are some who don't. Um, uh, but the thing with, like, the, the terrorists in here is especially today, it's like they're, they're – even though, you know – They've got the there's that goofy moment where um, there are two uh, terrorists on motorcycles and they drive up alongside. Oh, that's the, right. The, the limo oh, that was great. And there's just a great moment where Lavender's like, hit the brakes when I say now or whatever. And Lavender rolls down his windows now. And the guys fire and Lavender leans back and they shoot each other through the windows. And you just see like an overhead shot of like the limo going up. Uh, down the street and just like two motorcycles going whoa off the road and the guys fall off so it's a bit of um wacky terrorists Ooh. but with like you said the, the monitors and everything like that there's a bit of like it has like a a, a modern real world kind of bit of darkness to it that when um, when the terrorists shot each other though did you think of um the bigfoot in um night of the demon where he made the girl scout stab oh, each yeah, other <laughs> what i thought of when i was watching it <laughs> yeah, i'm thinking of that now um so so there, I, I do like there there is something with these um because back uh, uh i would say like back at this time these these were fairly sort of um just a generic bad guy to bring on uh but now they're more specific and uh so there is a bit of even though it is kind of a fun and and it has its silly moments it, it does have a bit more urgency to it than the Yakuza Ninja one, which was, um, you know, ninjas calling in sick, you know, like you said, and stuff like that. So, it's so, so good. Also, yeah. they, they were very specific in this episode to have Gregory Sierra play an Arab as a good guy, which I thought was yes, really yeah. interesting, too, and something you might not have seen in a lot of these TV shows back then. But they, they really wanted to balance out yeah. the idea of, like, there are terrorists who are from the Middle East and there are just people from the Middle East. Of course, he's a con man, but... Yeah. But like, but I think that they're trying. And but he's very likable, so they're definitely trying to like keep a balance mm -hmm. with that instead of like completely falling into the stereotype, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah, I did too. Because they, yeah, because the first time you see him when they when they show uh, when they're on the plane, he says something like, "They're the kind of people who give uh, Arabs bad names." And he's very is very specific to. Uh, and there is there is the interesting thing. Well, I thought it was interesting, and in that the the episode like you know like the the next episode is called the French Correction. It's a clever title, and but this one is just called Oil. It's not and it's not even set in Kuwait. Basically, it's mostly set in Rome. It just cuts to Kuwait yeah. on occasion. So it's interesting that they didn't give it a fun name or something more spy like. Just Oil. But I thought it was funny when it started in Kuwait and they were and they were like, OK, we're going to get all these people. And I didn't realize that they were going to go to Rome. And I'm like, oh, that's great. We're So you want us to work for your country? Where do we get to go? Do we get to go to France or, you know, like um, Hawaii? No, no, we're going to go to Kuwait. Yeah, we're, it's like, oh, what a vacation, guys. We're, Thanks. We're, we're going to go to the middle of the desert to an oil <laughs> refinery. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, see, yeah, and, and, and as, as far as my, my sort of thoughts on, on the rest of the episode, they're, they're pretty much what, what yours were. There, there, there are a couple moments. Um, there, there was one I, I couldn't – because that's the thing with this show is that everyone, I'll be watching it and everything will be going along fine. And then I'll realize when I look at my notes that I've completely forgotten something. I'll have to go back and look it up again. And sometimes things make sense and sometimes they don't. I had a confusing moment here 
where they're in the catacombs and they're trying to get to a specific wall, which is like the Borgia's crypts. Uh, and they need to, um, uh, Klugler has to go th drill through the wall and he's very excited about it because he's got like a brand new drill and stuff like that. He's have to drill through the wall and they'll like go into this tomb crypt and like go up some steps and then they'll reach a wall where that leads sort of directly into the place where Ahmed is. But the weird thing is that, I, and I don't know, maybe this was just me. So you see Susan Shoup, uh, Pamela Shoup, uh, looking at her, Miss Shoup, uh, looking at her notebook. And she's like, okay, we're going this way, we're going that way. Okay, this is the wall that you have to drill through. Okay, how much time do you need? Uh, you got four hours. Okay, I can do this. And he's drilling through. And I did have the thought, if he's taken like three, three and a half hours to drill through that wall, and like um, uh, Ms. Shoup and um, Casey, Casey, right? Did I yeah. get it right? Yes. Uh, and Danny are just like, stand, do they stand there and watch him for the entire three hours? Have I a get, cigarette. I get bored after a while. You know, like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wander the catacombs for about five minutes. I'll yell out if I get lost. Uh, but he drills through the the wall, and you know there's a space beyond there, and they step through the wall, and then you see them like walking through a space, going up some steps towards this other wall, and the whole time. Um, Ms. Shoop there is looking at her notebook, going, "Okay, and this is the wall," and then I thought, "Wait a minute, how did you map out?" the hallway you're in right now, if he just spent three hours drilling through a wall to get to this hallway, how did you know the that was here? Well, maybe I, she knew it from the other side. Like like she said it took her two years to map out the catacombs, so maybe she did it from all the different angles but left the wall, obviously, because she wasn't going to try to break through it to see. But, sure. but when she built her map, maybe she – I'm guessing because oh. you're right. They don't really clarify. But like maybe because she the, the maps are so intricate – uh -huh. that she did it from another angle and was able to ascertain what was on the other side of the okay. wall and then mapped it. You know what I mean? Okay. I'd buy that, yeah. Because I, I watched it this time and I was like, wait a minute, he just spent three hours drilling through that wall. How does she know what's there? But, hey, I'm, I'm, well, I'm with it. I'm with it. Well, they also did, so we, if we want, I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but like at the ending, so what they do is, is that um, they – they get Ahmed, they, they make this like fake explosion so that he thinks that the hostages have been killed and then therefore he has no bargaining chips. Mm -hmm. And then they have him get on the phone with the president and then this, there's this beep and it makes him kind of pass out the, the sound wave that they send it through. And then he wakes up and it's quote unquote seven months later and he's been set up to be executed for whatever he's done, treason or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what the terrorism and, um, mm -hmm. and they glue a beard to his face. Mm-hmm. So that he thinks he's been in there for seven months. And I'm like, does he not realize that that's not his real facial hair? <laughs> I did, Do I you know did, what I mean? Like yeah. when... <laughs> they, went, they went out of their way to show that he's, he's shackled so he can't lift his hands yes. up to his beard. But still, I'm fairly, Oh, I guess so. Well, you would I'm, feel it, right? I'm fairly conversant when I have a beard that I have facial hair. So I, I would... I, I would think you because it's your it's your it's it's you it's part of you you know and and I, I I guess I guess it's one of those things where the con man he's there and he's <laughs> just talking to him and talking to him and that's part of the con is he has to not give him time to say wait a minute that's not my beard I can see little hooks going over the ears come on <laughs> yeah I know it's just so funny it's like when he feel the glue and like like it, it was just so weird that they did that and um and I was thinking now of course I've never had a beard but I would assume it would feel different yeah than than a beard that's been glued on 
you know? And so it was just a funny moment to me because he was like in it to win it. He's like, Oh my God, I've been here for seven months, you know, like he bought it hook, line and sinker. Right. You know? And it was just such an odd thing that they did that like, it was, it was your, it was my catacomb wall. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. It's, um, they, they get the shackles, they do the fake beard, they have fake newspapers with headlines uh, saying how he's been arrested and he's going to be executed. They, you know, they go whole hog. Um, but I, at least they didn't do something like put one of those Groucho Marx things on him, you know, with the glasses and the fake nose and the mustache. <laughs> that would have been look, awesome. That would have been this awesome. This doesn't look right. Um Let's see. Uh, they are great who, special effects artists. When they get to the prison, the um, um, Omani's like, oh, we need to make this look more like a prison. And so uh, Christopher Knight's character, Hank, is like, well, how are you going to do that? And his wife is like, oh, you know, cobwebs, damp walls. I'm <laughs> she, like, she, and I just thought that was funny. Like, they've got to make the walls damp. <laughs> and and I, I wasn't fully. And then, I had, then for like 10 minutes, I was stuck on them going to Party City to buy, like, cobwebs and stuff. <laughs> You know, like I had this image of them, like this great special effects artist. And they're like, let's go to Party City City and pick up everything. (laughs) It just felt like so, I don't know. I mean, I know they're great special effects artists, but the damp wall thing just seems, I mean, it makes sense. But like, I I mean, they're just going to throw water on the walls. You can't make it smell damp. Like that's not a special effect that filmmakers do. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah, like the the fake beard isn't uh... Isn't a real beard. I, I do like I, the, I what the wife does after Christopher Knight says, "Well, how can you make it any more dank or whatever?" She it kind of like cuts to her and she kind of like does a little spin and she's like, "Well, we'll do cobwebs, we'll do damp walls." Like she's gonna, we're putting on a show, oil, you know, and she, and she just got got a little bit of that, yeah. her, which which I like. I will say, Deborah Dalton's hair, yes, is beautiful. Oh my God, she's the Farah of 1983. That haircut <laughs> on her—it wasn't like extravagant, but the way it kind of covered the one eye in this Veronica Lake sort of, but more yes. modern. I couldn't stop looking at her. I couldn't stop looking at her. Yeah, yeah. The the I I think um I think that they they are probably the ones who get a bit well they they because you you don't see much of their special effects set up. And at first, when you see the special effect that they're going to use, um, <laughs> it's, it's like it, they just it's kind of good. like, yeah, it's not good. They ju- they just basically you see the monitor, you see you see on the monitor, you see the guys in the cages, and then you know from like another monitor, they put up the special effect, which is just some really bad looking fire like going over them, like it's it's not good. Yeah, it's not good. Uh, you're going to need to do a little better than that. I'm not even sure with that effect how they thought that would be. That would work. That's some sort well, of Well, she weird... was working on it. Yes. Because she did that thing where she's like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, you've never done fake fire in a movie. You can make things look like you're in outer space, but you can't figure out CGI fire. And everything was done through, like, VCR tapes, too, which was really quaint and sweet. Because, yeah. like, remember um, when they're getting ready to actually use oh, yeah. the explosion special effect, Christopher Knight puts in the wrong cassette. Yeah. Yeah. And he says it. He's like, oh, I think I grabbed the wrong video cassette because they didn't label it properly, apparently. Mm. And then he had to pull it out. Maybe they were Umatic tapes, but I think they were video cassettes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it was kind of neat to see i mean, he might have even had a flip top where it comes up on the top instead of yes. on the side yep. like the yep. mod- newer ones did mm-hmm. and it was well i guess the ones at the video stores are not video stores but i guess the higher end ones would probably still be on top i don't know but anyway um anyway there's this whole really charming scene where he's like switching cassettes and it was so beautifully 1983 i couldn't stand it yes 
Yeah, and I, I do like the fact that um, I, I like suspense as much as the next guy, but there is something about you've got one thing to do, it's that fire special effect, and you grab the wrong tape. Come on, Christopher Knight. <laughs> knock, knock it off. Um, and, and, um, uh, and what they do in the end is they kind of more or less just sort of... Um, the, the, there's a there's a moment where Lavender and Ahmed and Ahmed's uh, like second in command are all watching the monitors and they like see someone like diddle around with something like an explosive or something on the side of the cage and like what's that man doing what's going on and then everything explodes and in the end they really more or less like ninety five percent of what they did was just like cut to stock footage of explosions and just kind of mix those in yeah <laughs> so so it isn't like so that fake fire that she brought up i don't even know why they went that I, I guess maybe they tried it as a special effect and then they realized it was just easier to write it a certain beat to to cut the um the explosion in. it would have been great yeah it would have been great if they were like stock footage and then they like there's an explosion and then there's like world war ii planes like they didn't edit it properly. So it's like whatever film they took it from, right? And it's like some war film from like the 60s. And they're oh, like, hey, that's okay, Gregory so, Pack. <laughs> suddenly it goes to black and white. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, darn it. Uh, so uh, now, uh, so I'm, I'm guessing your favorite character in this one was probably Mr. Gulliger, I would think. Yeah, I did like uh, Willie Earl a lot. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's hard to say because I do really like Gregory Sierra and he's yeah. really fun in this. You know, he's he's got a lot of energy and he keeps things really kind of upbeat and um, and he's fun. So it would be a toss up, I think. Although I did really like that swarthy guy that was checking out Pamela Susan Shoop. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah. He was pretty heroic there just to uh, the guy. The guy steals her notebook and he's on his little motorcycle and just just kicking ass for her. And they get they get a romantic yep. moment in, in in the end. And here here's the thing. I'm just and I'm just going to bring this up uh, briefly. But because <laughs> um, uh, uh, Pamela Shoup and Greg Evigan were in three episodes of BJ and the Bear together, uh, was it the Fast and the Furious Part One and Two and the Christmas episode? And so I wanted to see that. And that was just um, two three years before this, two and a half three years before this or so. And so I, I was hoping they'd have a nice scene together. There's a scene where they're all sitting at a table talking, but she's uh, paying more attention to the gentleman, uh, the Italian gentleman, than she is Mr. Evigan. But they do have a lovely scene right before she goes away with the guy in the end where the two of them talk. And I thought it was a sweet scene. And um, and that's all I'm going to say on that. I, I like both of them. Oh, well, nice to see that. What did you think of um, What did you think of Casey and Danny's little interaction at that table oh, when they were that... filming the Romance of Rome? Yes, yes, that 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 was an interesting one because I um, yeah, I don't know what I thought of that scene. I actually watched it and then I watched it again and I thought, hmm, I'm not sure, because I I don't, because part of me doesn't doesn't feel like these these um, uh, these two should probably get together. They they should they shouldn't. Yeah, uh, they shouldn't. Another, yeah, no. but um, so so it was sweet to see that. So yeah, like you said, the romance of Rome was sort of overtaking them and and such. But um, I'm glad it kind of um tapered off into uh like a purse snatching because that uh that makes yeah well they they were both like are you're looking pretty good to me danny and she's and he's like well you're looking pretty good to me kc and then she (laughs) she's got this flower in her hand and then but then there's something like is this really going to happen and she's like nah you know and i love that because i like them i like them a lot as friends 
And also is, um, I can't remember if it's this episode or the other episode that we're going to talk about later, um, where she, he whispers in her ear, I love you passionately. Oh, I think it's the other one. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. But, um, but like, and she, and she's like pervert. And so like, they have this really fun relationship where like, I think it's a little flirtatious because they're obviously both a very attractive people, but they're, they're dedicated to their job and they're friends. And, and so I like that they, every so often there's some funny flirting is cute, but it never goes beyond like the very basics of it. And then, and then they go back to work, you know, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think uh, in in the business they're in, if they they start flirting too much, it might be a little. <laughs> when they've got uh, several American citizens there, who they who they need to be tending to, yeah, to pro- probably would get get a bit too distracting. Let let Pamela Shoop have the romance, and you guys um you guys keep an eye on it. Yeah, I just I just saw on the oh, and I forgot they put fake nails on Ahmed when he's in the um. That's right, they did. He in, would feel that I've worn fake nails. I, you can tell. <laughs> I think it's just because they have him in the shackles, and the, and so that's like, well, I can't. But yeah, but you can um, feel it he, though. You you would think he 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 you would think he'd like maybe touch the nails because his hands can reach one another. I think they look like they could. Yeah, I, I think don't know. so. But yeah, I mean, I like I mean, like so if it's just a Lee press on nail, you can. There's like a little weight to them, and so they make your hands feel a little different when you have them on. So I can't imagine that. He didn't notice the glue on his face and the glue on his fingers. I mean, at least one of them would have stood out to him, I think. Yeah, I'm hoping uh, – because I, I actually that scene is playing here right now, and that is a really filthy little place they have him in there. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. Well, they made the walls damp. They made the walls. Maybe that's what it is. He's like, what am I smelling? Is that damp wall? Whew. It's who that's strong. <laughs> that's been here forever. Oof. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's it's. I I guess I can see how it. Um, okay, let, let me just let me ask the the. Okay, so the thing in the hallway in the catacomb confused me slightly, but I'll let the, that one roll. The the other thing is, I thought, and I I I I don't know if I was missing something, but right at the end when they're about to execute Ahmed or fake execute him, uh, he says something that they record that they play into the oil field or whatever in Kuwait and it turns off all the explosives. Um, and I was confused because I thought at the beginning that he had said he was going to say something specific. And so he just, yeah, did, did, or did he, he did though at the end, cause it was his little, it was, it was a prayer to Allah. Right. Okay. And so let's not stereotype this, but it was a prayer to Allah. And so I guess his original voice command was the same prayer. Okay. And I don't know how they could. I don't know how they assumed that they could get him to say the exact words that he had pre-planned to say. I'm not real sure how they were so. Uh, what's that word? That they could see that that that's what he was going to say. But that yes. I guess they hoped for the it best because so he because at the end he's like, yeah, you could kill me, but Allah about any breaks into this can prayer. And then and then they're like, we got it, guys. And then like, I didn't mean to say the f word there. Sorry. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then um. And then, you know, and then all the little red lights go off. I love how they have the Red Cross guy tampering with the bomb. Like, what yeah. do you, dude, stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was yeah, hilarious yeah. because he comes in and there he's, and they, that's what he, they brought him in to do, to look like uh-huh. he was tampering with the explosive. Yeah. But he, he I'm really glad he, yeah, he was mm-hmm. a super good explosive expert. 
super good because that's a real dangerous thing. But then they just see him picking at it, and, it, and then Lavender's like, what's that guy doing? And, and But he's a Red Cross guy, so why are you asking Ahmed, number one? Number two, he's picking at what looks like a detonator kind of to me. To, or, or like the clay that goes around it, or something like it. Clearly, looks mm-hmm. like something you shouldn't just be picking at if you're in a if you're in a cage. Yeah, that's uh, you know. Yeah, it's a and, and luckily there's that loud sound and the fake explosion and and the wall blows up and why uh, la- lavender. Why didn't they? Why didn't they recruit? Why didn't they recruit a Red Cross employee who was also a bomb expert? I bet there are a bunch of those. There must be. There, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I did. I didn't really think of that. Yeah, that would work. I would think. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. So um, I'm going to say uh, my favorite character is. Jeez, um, I do really like Clue Gulliger. Um, I don't. Oh gosh, I'm gonna, just going to go with Pamela Shoop. I think she's a bit underused. Of course. In it. Uh, but yeah, um, but she's sweet. She's sweet, and and she she knows her stuff. She guides them through the the maze of the catacombs, so she does what she needs to do. Uh, it it is interesting, of course, because they have to um, bring her and Clue along to get through the walls. But then, like the moment that wall blows up, they're in there with weapons and they're shooting everyone, and everyone's shooting back at them. So I I hope they like said like we're gonna blow through the wall. Yeah, I forget. Do they say like guys get far away from this wall as far away I, as you can? I think that. Th- I don't think that they come in the room, so I guess they told him to stay behind. But what's interesting, so I just want to bring up uh, Willie Earl's casual misogyny is pretty fascinating. Um, so the whole reason, the whole way that they can recruit him is that they send Casey in, and he, she's so beautiful that he can't, he doesn't even ask her what the mission is or what he's doing. He's just like, oh, my God, you're Kirstie Alley, and so, yes, I'll go. But then what's interesting is... He must have a pension for brunettes because he was checking out the brunette at that table when they were all having lunch, but he doesn't hit on Pamela Shoup's character ever. No, no, not at all. Yeah. And that was so strange to me because she's quite beautiful, even in the even though they tried to sort of nerd her up, mm-hmm. you know? She's clearly gorgeous. And so it's just funny that he had no, like, leeringness towards her. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they keep her kind of, um, not matronly, but sort of... Um professorally or something up until the end when she kind of wears they a do. Red, red dress which is a, not a you know a crazy sexy red dress but a little nicer than those others but you can't hide you can't hide the shoopness you like can't hide that she's no. she's no she's amazing to look at and like yeah. you can throw a pair of glasses on her and maybe even put her hair up a little but it's still pretty incredible and so like like her bone structure alone is like ridiculous and so like I, it's just funny to me that, like, but also they also kind of indicate that she was kind of a wild child. So maybe the whole matronly thing was her trying to make up for all the years yeah. she had spent in Rome. Because remember she had talked about, like, how she was a different person while she was there. And she had sort of indicated that maybe she partied a little. Yes. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. I'd love to see Pamela yeah. Susan oh, Schubert have partying. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I always, I, back when I, um. When I reviewed Gemini Man for uh, Polish American Guy reviews things, she's in she's in an episode of Gemini Man, and she uh, with the episode where they have the fake Ben Casey 
who is no wait ben murphy what's his character's name in that casey yeah um, <laughs> yeah uh, ben, you know the fake ben murphy um and and he's he's the she's the fake ben murphy's girlfriend and she's like working at like a, a health health farm kind of thing 70s kind of fat farm sort of thing and she goes around the whole time in little shorts and a very tight top and i'm just watching her thinking why wasn't she a charlie's angel she would have been an awesome charlie yeah angel. I, I would yeah, she's watched... a she's a very very beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. I would have watched that show religiously. I watch it occasionally. <laughs> I would have watched it religiously. Oh uh, well, I like I like all the women they went with, but I, I get it. I think she's as beautiful as any of the women that were on Charlie's Angels for sure. And um and so like even but she's a good actress. I mean I think she kind of played the sort of shy professor fine and i bought that but but when i was thinking about willie earl and like i said his casual misogyny yes. like it, it she should have been like more noticeable to him and it's funny that she wasn't yeah yeah he does say at one point I've, I've been underground too long or something like that so maybe maybe that's got something to do with it i don't know I, i've never been a minor. <laughs> i've never, I've never yeah been a minor. i don't know i don't willie earl slocum yeah. Oh, there you go. Will go ahead. Earl. I'm sorry. Oh no, no. Um. Uh. Let's. <laughs> I, I, let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna uh, have a look at my notes here and see what else I have. What What else do you have for this one? I well, I wanted to. We talked about this before the recording, but I looked up Deborah Dalton, who plays Christopher oh, Knight's yeah. wife, because I hadn't really seen her in anything, and I was obsessed with her hair, and I thought she was so beautiful, and she's really good in the role. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what else she's been in. And I saw she she was on Days of Our Lives, and she did a couple of like where she was like. Um, I don't want to say bit parts because that sounds horrible, but she played like character roles and some movies and stuff. And then I saw, oh, look, she's been a writer and a producer and a director on things. So I clicked on them and she did some TV movies, which I'm not familiar with, unfortunately, but which I'm going to seek out. But I saw that she wrote the screenplay to horror with Teresa Russell. And that blew my mind because I saw that when it came out in the theater. And I remember thinking it was a pretty great film. And I haven't seen it since, so I can't speak much for what happens in the movie. It's a day in the life of a horror or something like that. But it's really kind of satirical and smart and strange and interesting. And I thought, wow, this woman from this episode of Masquerade would go on to write this really quirky, funny, weird, independent film. And I was really impressed with that. And some TV movies. Whore. I, I, I like the fact that, too, you forgot the part of the story where she actually tried to get Christopher Knight to co-write Whore with her but he was busy oh, yeah. he, well i wouldn't be surprised though if he he had a part in that because <laughs> i watched it when he was on the real life or real world or whatever that show was called and he's he understands certain things that other was people it, don't i think was it that wasn't that like ken ken russell said i was led to believe that christopher knight was going to be involved in the script on this was this a ken russell film? yeah i don't know if i want to make yeah, it now it Oh. You know what? I can never remember if it's Ken Russell or Nicholas Rogue because Teresa Russell oh, was married okay. to Nicholas Rogue, right? Okay. And um, that's a lot of Russell. But she worked a lot with Ken Russell, and mm-hmm. so I get them confused all the time. Um, and plus, they they weren't similar filmmakers, but they both were making like these quirky, sometimes hypersexualized yeah. kind of films. Mm-hmm. And so um, I get them mixed up. But it, Ken Russell was the director. Okay. All right. Cool. And also all co-writer right. of the screenplay. So imagine Deborah Dalton approaching him. And being like, okay, Ken Russell, I would like very much to make a movie called Horror, and I would like you to co-write with me. And he's like, your hair is amazing. I just want to be near your hair all the time. Please, 
<laughs> and I, I think I, I, I've, I know I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because we don't use the word horror a lot on this podcast. But it's my, my wife telling the story. Yeah, my wife telling the story of because uh, she lived, grew up in Connecticut, and calling the local like AMC theater the weekend horror came out, and hearing you know like um, the. I, I, thank you for calling AMC 13 today. Uh, three men and a baby. Uh, four o'clock, uh, seven o'clock, and ten o'clock. Whore. For, and the guy would really like hit it. Whore. And 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 I just uh, every time I see that, I think I I don't think I've ever seen whore. And I feel or what am I? Th- I'm I'm thinking of Black Widow with Teresa Russell. I've seen that, but I have not seen um, whore. I don't think. I haven't seen Black Widow. So between the two of us, though, we've we've probably seen it, Teresa Russell's entire filmography. Yay! Do you think? Yay! Because I really yeah. like her. Have you seen Track yeah. Twenty Nine? No, I haven't. That's a great that's film, and I think I'm. Oh, that, I think. yeah. I can't remember. I get them mixed up, so I, I'm not even. Gonna, and I hate that I do that because that's really messing up my street cred. But like, I can never <laughs> remember which one did which. So I just know that she was. She worked with Ken Russell, so I thought she was married to him because they had the same last name. But she was actually married to Nicholas Rogue. And so I think that's interesting because I get those two filmmakers mixed up all the time. But anyway, um, Track 29 is brilliant, and I, I think – I don't know who the director is, so I'm not even going to pretend like I'm, I know what I'm talking about. But it's quite good. Um, yeah, Teresa in Wild Things. I mean, she's been in some really interesting oh, yes, films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, the – I'd forgotten that the theme when uh, – well, it's kind of a vague theme in the background during the scene where we first see the gentleman who's looking at Ms. Shoup. And then when he returns again in the end, we get a little bit of three coins in a fountain. Da, 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 da. And I always think of planes, trains, and automobiles when they're on the bus. Uh, Neil, you sing oh. something. And Steve <laughs> Martin breaks into that. And then there's a pause. And Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. It's not, it's not the, <laughs> the vocal. It's the instrumental version that plays on Masquerade. But it's playing calmly in the background. I didn't know that was an Italian-related song. But it can be. There was a fountain nearby. Why not? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Uh, let's see. Um, do you have any more info on any of the the folks in it or anything? I think um, cobwebs. And no, rats I and think damp walls. Yeah, damp walls. It's it's a very good episode. Um, I quite liked it, and uh, everybody's really really good in it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I I think yeah, this one and the ninja one are probably perfect starters for it. Although there's a possibility that they might be the best episodes, so you might not see ones as good as these but we yeah, don't know that for certain yeah. yet yeah so okay so i guess if um uh if that's all we have on this um amanda what what are you up to well um i i guess not much right now i'm working on some things that haven't been announced yet but i guess the big thing would be well i've got stuff coming out at the end of the next couple months so look for my liner notes in the hills have eyes part two which is an arrow Yay. release and then following that then in september i did the commentary for the prey which is a sasha movie that i think oh, you and i both love um yeah i did that with thank you i'm so excited about it um <laughs> i did that with you and can at who works for arrow and i'm really excited about that we had a lot of fun doing that um, and then I also did a commentary for a TV movie coming out called Nightmare in Badham County, which I'm do- I did with uh, Justin Kurzweil of The Hysteria Lives and The Hysteria nice. Continues. And then I did a solo commentary that's also coming out. Um, so Nightmare in Badham County is through Kino Lorber and this other one, Death Dreams, which is a Christopher Reeve, Mark Helgenberger TV movie that's quite good. Um, I'm do- I did the sol- a solo commentary for that. That's- those are both coming out in October. I just had an article go up on Nicholas Winning Refn's website, which is 
buynwr.com, and it's about soap operas, TV movies, and the horror genre, and how they all kind of cross over on each other. And um, I really enjoyed doing that. That was fun for me. That Those are the three things I love most in the world. And otherwise, just look for me and us, because Dan and I do another podcast called the Made for TV Mayhem Show. So if you look up Made for TV Mayhem on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you will find me and or our podcast pages and or my blog. And then you'll find all that information there. Thank you again for joining me. Yay! And we are Yay, now, thank you. Uh, I had fun. Yeah, yeah we are now uh, more than halfway through uh, the run of the show. So we'll see... Um, We'll see whether this is one of those shows that, um, of course, I don't know what the production order was. For all we know, this could have been like the last episode or something like that that they shot. Um, we So we'll see if this is one of those shows that kind of learns how to sort of do it right and gets better as it goes or goes off in vague directions like, say, Gemini Man did as it went along. But I will just wrap up and say that, um, yeah, tune in next time for The French Correction. Huh? Fun title. And where we will be joined again by... Lavender, Danny, and Casey. Huh? Finally. Yay! Yay! It only, it only took seven episodes. <laughs> All right, folks, let's go to this. Masquerade will continue in a moment. And so ends episode 75 of Eventually Super Train. I hope you all enjoyed it. I think, I think it's going along, along pretty good. We are... We're, we're we're definitely in the in the, in the in the not quite home stretch for your Indiana. We have five episodes left, uh, but that's still a lot. And yeah, uh, what we got fourteen episodes of Burbage Street Beat left, so we got a lot of Burbage Street Beat, and we got what eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, six episodes of um, Masquerade left. Uh, so. I, yeah, I think it's a good time. And thank you, everyone, so much for listening. 75 episodes. Hands in the air, everyone who's been here the whole time and heard every episode. I applaud you. The very nature of the show, I think, means that if you're tuning in for everything, you're you're either really, like, super crazy, super crazy about short-lived TV shows, like I am, so I, I could see you doing that, or you're super crazy about hearing me talk constantly. Not constantly. But then thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, not too far from 100. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get to 100. Maybe it's super train time. I don't know. We haven't even done Project UFO or Shadow Chasers or G-Search or a myriad of, of other. Dan August. We might do Dan August. Well, the thing with Dan August, if we do Dan August, we did the house on Green Apple Road on Made for TV Mayhem show. So I would refer you there for that. And then we talk Dan August on here. But there, there's still shows... Uh, I was going to say The Last Precinct. I did The Last Precinct. I completely forgot. <laughs> Out of the blue. Yeah, there's so many fun sh- I wish we could find what the, the three episodes of Struck by Lightning. We got the first one, but ah, forget about it. Uh, supertrain.blogspot.com. I think it's esupertrain at yahoo.com is the, is the email address. I'm always forgetting what it is, so I'll give you Danny, D-A-N-N-Y, slacks, S-A-L-C-K-S, at yahoo.com. If you want to leave some feedback, Addy Supertrain 1 on Twitter, eventually Supertrain on uh, Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundClouds. Please feel free to leave a rating. Please feel free to leave a review. It's all wonderfully appreciated. Now we will end the episode with... 80s action movies on the cheap. By Daniel R. Budnick. This book explores the excitement, 
audacity, and sheer weirdness of 80s low-budget action cinema. Providing detailed commentary on 284 low-budget, high-impact pictures. Available now.